Welcome to Tech Royalty, where we celebrate the kings of tech. I'm back with my boy Esco Bong. He's about to give you some more jewels. This is the second part because he had so much good stuff that I had to just split it up. It's like you can't just get it all in one session. So Esco is going to continue off on his experience and then we're going to chop it up. Oh, thanks, thanks for the intro. Yeah, it was fun because every time I would try to talk about a point in my life and like just other things keep popping up where it kind of makes sense to go down the path and like <clears throat> talk more about things and explain things. Right. And I think at first I was kind of worried. I was like, damn, I keep rambling. And then, and then it was like, you know what? Actually, it kind of made sense. Nah, brother, um, it's all good. Thanks, man. Thanks. Because like when people, like, even if you think about a book, right? You're in a book about somebody's life. They're using the events in their life to be able to teach lessons. So I think in the end, you know, that, that kind of worked out. Um, so then, yeah, you know, continuing on that whole path, you know, right now I'm at Airbnb. And, you know, it's been a great experience. Uh, it was, it's interesting, the, the whole way that it started, because I was at Uber at the time. <clears throat> and uh, that was my, like, second, I call it second tour <laughs> at Uber. Um, they called me a boomerang. And the reason why is because I left Uber and I came back. So that's what they call it, a boomerang. And for anybody who does that, for any, it, it's, it's like a, a term, a popular term in different companies. And uh, I had left in 2017 to do my own consulting firm and start up for a little bit. Uh, but then I uh, slowly but surely realized, you know, I built, you know, I had, I wanted my own agency, wanted to work my own things and so on, but it was, the work-life balance was not better. It was actually worse and it was making less money. Um, so my whole thing was I wanted to just build my own company, become a, you know, try to succeed as an entrepreneur to make as much money as possible. Um, but then I didn't realize you don't actually need to do that for financial independence or financial stability. Um, there's this thing called FIRE financial independence, retire early, mm-hmm. um, which is starting to go mainstream if it's not already, that kind of shows that you don't actually need this massive income or, you know, huge company, huge corporation to be to be financially stable. You just need a good amount of savings that you invest and the returns from that investment will be enough to pay for all your living expenses every year. And to get that, you got to take, you know, add up all your living expenses, multiply it by 25, that's the amount of money you need invested. Uh, and then with a you know conservative 4% return, the idea is that that return is going to pay off the living expenses year by year. So working in big tech with these with these salaries, you know, you're a senior engineer, you can make anywhere from $350,000 to $500,000 a year plus. More. And working yeah. like that for four years, you can easily save up your, your fire amount and then retire if you want to. But, you know, it's financial independence, retire early. You don't need to retire. It's really about getting that financial independence. So that's what really brought me back into the full-time work, you know, working for other people, working for other companies. Because the whole time I was thinking about the opportunity, you know, when I was working at these companies, always financing that on the side, because I was thinking about all these opportunity costs from working here. I could be building my own thing and, you know, making billions potentially, who knows. But then there's also other costs too. Like there's, there's always going to be trade-offs. You try to make your own thing. Obviously, there's a high level of risk involved especially if you don't have any, any investors behind it, then you got to bootstrap it. So now you got to put your own finances up, up. And if it doesn't work out, then you kind of got to start from square one, build yourself back up, and then you just worse off overall. As opposed to, you know, going into the industry, working with somebody else for a few years, you know, which is something that only the higher owner, high earners can do. Like for, for lower incomes, it may take 10, 15 years, which is a long time. And maybe you want to take the risk, you know, in between that time. But if you could earn a lot of money and do it quickly, you know, I suggest do that for a short period of time and then do whatever you want for the yeah, rest of that point on. 
that's 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 the way I'm going through it. Because I've done many different startups attempts throughout my my career, from even started from college. Uh, you know, leaving my job multiple times, like what I was just saying with Uber. And if I had just stuck on the same path, like saving up, investing instead of like blowing a lot of cash on different different areas, I'll be in a much better position right now. I could be on, be fired right now, you know, instead of around you know one to two years. I'm expecting to, to hit fire, and now that that's the main kind of got pushed back because of the economy. You know, the macroeconomics is crazy right now. A lot of a lot of layoffs because because of that perception. Even even companies that don't need to do layoffs are doing layoffs. Uh, and you know, there's a war going on right now. Stock market's tinking. So I'm a bit more conservative with my estimates. So initially, it was going to be later this year, but I'm pushing that back by about two years. Yeah, it's scary. Um, yep. Got to make sure you're secure. Um, so yeah, like basically, you know, like I was saying, it was a boomerang at Uber, came back and I was at Uber doing my thing. Uh, and then the director reached out to me because of my group uh, and, you know, my Facebook group where I help software engineer, black software engineers specifically to study for data structures, architecture, and algorithms to pass these tech interviews. And the reason why I created that group is because, you know, during this phase where I had left Uber, I was doing my thing for about two years. <coughs> I got a lot of experience in different areas. Like I had a team of four, four to five engineers, uh, like two designers, one PM, or well, two, but across different projects and so on. And, you know, I was doing a little bit of coding as well for some projects, especially towards the end um, where I decided to wind it down and like try to go back into full time and then do some more contracting, um, do some work for Canon and uh, Harry Davidson. But um, throughout those two years, I was like completely outside of the the big tech environment. So I was like, I was like terrified that I wouldn't be able to pass interviews, especially Uber. Like I had been at Uber before, was applying again. Uh, I was like, damn, wouldn't it be crazy if I failed the second, like yeah, when I tried to get back take in? take the test again? Wow. Oh, yeah. yep. Well, the thing about it is if you leave and you come back within, within one year, you don't have to re-interview. Gotcha. Uh, and that, at least what I heard from other people who've done that, you know, within that amount of time. I'm not sure what the policy is right now, but from what I've heard, that's a popular policy across Google, Facebook, Uber. Um, and then most likely other, other other big tech companies. But once you hit like beyond that, especially two years, you gotta do the interview all over again. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, basically, you know, I was applying to big companies, Amazon, Google, Uber, you know, also Reddit, Squarespace, uh this, this startup called Braze. And, yeah, I did Braze before and Squarespace, yep. Oh, nice. And I was like, you know, I hadn't been looking at algorithms for a while. I had to be part of like a normal development environment. So I was just like in like panic mode, basically trying to figure out, okay, I want to do this. I'm going to do this right. You know, create a regimen for myself, figure out what topics on weekend, uh, set up a Trello board to make sure I kind of do this in a systematic way that I'm tracking things because I want to do this on the timeline. Um, and then at some point I had met up with a few friends that was also studying to get into interviews. And then we had gone to WeWorks you know, we were doing that, you know, all days through the week for for about a month or so before the crew broke up and kind of went off into their own paths. Mm. Uh, and then I was doing a lot of a lot of self-studying at home, kind of treating it like a full-time job in a way where I would take time, you know, hours out of my day to just practice different legal questions, uh, architecture concepts and so on. And through all that, I was able to land offers at every single company that I interviewed with, including Amazon, Google, 
Uber, you know, the, the big, the big, the big guys. And to me, I was just like, yeah, that's crazy. Cause like the people I was, I was studying with, some of them, you know, had interviewed at Uber as well and they got rejected. And I really put a fire under me. I was like, damn, it's real. <laughs> I got, I got to do more, more, more prep. I pushed my interview back by a whole month mm-hmm. because of that. I told them like, you know what? I, I need another month. <laughs> got to seeing like three people fill right in a row. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to be just the next to walk right behind them off the cliff. I'm going to get another month and, and make sure I prep right. Um, and then, you know, just seeing the whole process, you know, what I did and the fact that, you know, the really important fact to me is the fact that I got an offer from every single company. That made it clear to me that I was doing something right that could be replicatable for other people. Because when I look back at people that I grew up with, who was in my neighborhood, um, the few of us who went for computer science, um, the, the only ones really that I knew about, they wasn't even in the field when I had met up with them years later. They, they actually stayed in college and graduated, um, but they was working in places like, you know, working at a pharmacy or work, or, and then, you know, as like, not even as a pharmacist, uh, you know, as like a, a clerk at a store, uh, you know, working like at Home Depot or so on, or, you know, that, that, type of, that type of work because they had trouble breaking into the industry. And then here's me, not only in the past already, again, you know, working at New York Times, senior engineer and so on, who were being a senior engineer. But now getting six offers back to back from all from all these big companies, um, there's a clear there's a clear difference, and it's not I don't think it's uh, attributable to me personally innately. When I was younger, a lot of people keep saying, "Oh, you're a genius, you're a genius," just because of the things that I'm interested in, and, and then you know take the time to to learn. But it's not about being a genius; definitely not a genius. It's really just about making sure you take the time to focus on whatever you, you want to learn, and then do it. And then once you do that, you know people people kind of shy away from it because it's like work. But once you get into it, you, you get into it, you kind of keep going and become a habit and so on. Yep. And once you, over time, you build that skill, you look back, all that time would have been wasted if you wasn't doing this. So it was good that you did it. And now you're at a place where you can achieve certain things because of that. So, you know, that's why I created a group to help guide people, you know, and especially from our community where there's a lot of, a lot of underrepresented talent uh, in our community that's not getting opportunities or being misguided. And, you know, in the last episode, I talked about how I wanted to apply to MIT, um, but they charged $25 for the application fee. And at the time, I didn't have any money. It was a part of myself. And it just didn't, in my head, the calculation didn't make sense. Um, I have a much different mindset around that nowadays. Like, that's a good opportunity to potentially get into that college. So even if there's sacrifices to be made, I probably would have did it. Um, just the same way I made a lot of sacrifices as far as, like, time and investment when I was studying. Uh, getting different courses and all that stuff, spending money on resources. Uh, you know, I didn't have a good balance. You know, next time around, I would I would make sure I have a better balance. But I was really like isolating myself into into studying, and you know, it's that return on the investment. A lot of people don't look at it that way, but if you just think about it, whatever you're putting up, it may seem expensive. Even with boot camps, right? Some a lot of boot camps mm-hmm. could be considered scammy because like they this is like an industry, right? Any industry has a section of scam section of scammers and then legitimate players. So for the legitimate players, people still scoff at those the, the legitimate ones and think, oh, you're paying fifteen thousand uh, dollars, but you're not realizing once you do that, you get a you get a career. You you make hundreds of thousands of dollars every single year. So like yeah. return that investment, it makes a lot of sense. Um. You know, in these courses online, you want to pay for premium subscriptions or, you know, $100 courses, $500 courses. All this is to get hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it makes a lot of sense. And it's self-improvement. 
um, you know, much better than over time spending the same amount, but on frivolous things without even realizing it. Um, you know, like eating now, taking taxis everywhere, all stuff, the things that yeah. I've done. That, I'm, I'm highlighting the things that I waste my money on. And if you add it all up, for me at least, it's a crazy amount that I could be investing in things for self-improvement. Um, another reason why I like to review review my my finances. But anyway, going back to the the main, the focal point, <coughs> there's a very strong lack of guidance in our community. And that's because there's not many people to learn from. Way back in the day, we were completely banned from college. You know, you wanted to go, I know, I saw this uh, this notice online from the 60s uh, about the school called Emory. It's a school yeah, in my, Emory, my Yep, my younger sister, she she was applying there, um, and she 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 got like a lot of options. She's doing pretty good, but that that letter from the sixties was a rejection letter to some a black person that was saying that while you are while you are qualified, they were kind of impressed with the person's background. They were saying that we we are not allowed to accept Negroes into our institution, and you know people from that time, sixties is not that long ago for yep. talking about history. People from that time are still alive right now. My parents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's it's crazy, and that's what, see that's so the people who are alive right now who are the elders, they got held back massively back in the day. So they didn't get the opportunities to get the skills and the knowledge that they can pass down and so on. And that trend continued generation after generation. So there's not much guidance. You know the the the, the mindsets that people would have in a situation where they're being blocked from all these opportunities. Is that, oh, I see this guy, he's working so hard, and then they didn't even give him a job. Or, you know, I see this guy, he worked hard, he got a job, but they're making him clean the floors. Like, it's a very negative perception if you try to go off the thing of after success. Um, you know, people look at the other examples of sports and entertainment where they see people doing great and being happy and making a lot of money, and then that's where they kind of gravitate towards because that's, that's the positive examples that they're seeing. And so, that's the limelight, yeah. Exactly. So over time... You know, that culture persists. It changes slightly, but it definitely persists. And it has a negative effect on the aspirations of our people. You know, when you're younger, you're thinking about what you want to do, what you want to go after. I don't know. I, f- I remember I was watching, I think it was because I watched Bill Nye, the Science Guy. I remember when I was real young, maybe like elementary school, junior high. Um, somebody, some one of the teachers going around asking kids, what do you want to be? What do you want to be? Most of the kids was like, oh, I want to be a basketball player. I want to be this or that. I was like, I want to be a scientist. And then it was like, oh, scientists. Because I was like, you know, no, most kids wasn't saying stuff like that. And mm-hmm. that, that wasn't because of anything, I don't think, like a name. It's because at home, I was watching, you know, Bill Nye's Science Guys. And for whatever reason, you know, that that thing interested me. I, I asked my mom for like, can I have this dinosaur set, um, experiment type set, whatever it is, like a play with. Like being immersed in like educational type things helped to, helped to focus my mindset on, on going after, you know, bigger aspirations. So, you know, that type of guidance is powerful and it's, it exists in a lot of other communities in force, especially yeah. if you look at, you know, if you look at the, the Asian community in, in the United States, as far as software engineering, they're dominating the software engineering field. And the reason oh, yeah. why I say dominating it because the population in the, in the country is significantly less than the reputation in the field. And what people don't realize when, they, when, they, when they're looking at these, these numbers and, and doing comparisons is that because the population of Asians is so small, a lot of them is, are immigrants or not directly immigrants, but like descendants of people who came yeah. more recently than everybody else. Because like everybody in America for the most part is immigrant. But like they're, they're kind of, they're, their history is newer in the country. And these people who came over, who made it from their country and, you know, had to invest a lot of money to get here. And then when they got here, had to figure out how to survive. 
and all, at the same time having all this pressure because they know only out of the few people that made it from their, their original country, they made it here. And they, when they, you know, there's a huge expectation for them to contribute back home where they yeah. came from. So their mindset is much different from somebody who's growing up in America who's just thinking, oh, I need to go get a job. I mean, I'm, I'm living life. They they already have a mission in their mind already. So they, they, they're given that guidance. They have the goal. They have the structure. And they have the aspirations already built in. Uh, and they, they're going after it. And there's the strong guidance coming up from the elders and so on. You know, a lot of, a lot of people in our community, in the black community, they, we don't have elders like that. For me, I didn't grow up with my father. He didn't raise me. So mm. he's not, there's nothing he can be, te- he was teaching me or anything like that as far as direction where to go into. And that's, that's very prevalent in the, in the black community. Unfortunately. In the, in the lower socioeconomic uh, group, you know, unfortunately. Um, so the expectation that, you know, some people who are, who were, who were um, either immigrants or recent descendants of immigrants who have a massive drive and expectation to contribute back home and focus on achieving some kind of success, comparing that to somebody growing up with, no, with one parent and that parent is stressed out, trying to figure out how to support every, everything, no time to really even reflect and stuff like that. There's a much, there's a massive difference as far as that. And that's where like the whole system, systemic racism comes in. Cause like, like I mentioned before, being blocked from, from schools or, I mean, sorry, yeah, from schools, being blocked from jobs, be, even if you get a job, being given shit work and not getting recognition, not getting paid as much, that all carries on over time. Yeah. Generation by generation has a massive effect into the outcome of what we see today. You know, that's what the, that's where the state of the today's world came from. So, you know, a large part of why I created that group is to make sure I can help fill the gaps in our networks because, like I said, we don't have enough people to look up to and not just look up to, we don't have people who are at the top to look down and give us the guidance. So we have to find out the few people who who made it and figure out how we can help each other and, and give give everyone the right advice. That is true. And that group definitely helped me. So I ain't no complaints from me. Thanks, man. I'm glad to hear it. You know, one day I'm going to put together a good collage of all the success and then, you know, help promote it and get more people in because... And also encourage other people to help people once they're realizing, hey, they, they have some knowledge. They could have been sharing it all this time. Yeah. Um, you know, a whole community effort. Um, so, yeah, like, you know, that that's why I created a group. And there was a, a senior manager who at Airbnb who saw that. Um, his name is Dwalu. And he reached out to me on LinkedIn. He was like, yeah, I see what you're doing with the group. Uh, you know, I think you might be interested in Airbnb. Uh, you know, he basically set up a call. So I talked with him. At the time, I was I was doing good at Uber. I wasn't even thinking about moving nowhere. Um, but he was telling me about how yeah, they they actually put a good emphasis on diversity. You know, they they have a lot of initiatives. They want to hire twenty five percent of the company wants to be underrepresented by twenty twenty five, and you know all these other things. Uh, the black leadership is there's a, there's a good amount of black leadership at Airbnb um, from what I've seen relative to other companies. Uh, you know, there's a black a black person in the C suite as well. Um, that's in my org. And it was just, you know, the, the culture seemed better. You know, then I went on blind, you know, you know, the blind app, right? That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the, I, back in the day, that's where I found out I was on the page on the blind app. Um, but yeah, but this time around I was looking into Airbnb and I was like, look, cause you know what, we're blind. You always see the negative stuff. And I was seeing time to time people saying, yep. uh, at time to time people were saying that Airbnb has like the grace, the best work-life balance that, they, that they've had at different companies. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. I'm hearing, I'm looking at this online is consistently seeing that messaging. Uh, so I'm like, okay. And then, you know, because of the pandemic, 
uh, well, a mixture of pandemic and also Airbnb has its headquartered in, in uh, San Francisco and they, they don't really have any offices in New York like Uber did. So the expectation for me would be to be remote, at least initially. No, no, there was no long-term guarantees, but um, that was that was also an attractive thing as well. Uh, so like all these things adding up, you know, Airbnb, Uber, you know, at similar levels as far as uh, engineering rigor and in the big tech and the tech company, the good practices, top talent, um, you know, same pay pay scales basically. And I was like, okay, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna consider it and try it. And then you know, I did the did the interview. I this time around, I, I spent maybe like a few weeks practicing, and that's because I've been you know helping people in the group doing these questions, so I'm still up to date as well. So it was like a win win. And I was able to get an offer, you know, got in and it's been, it's been great. You know, I, my expectations were met as far as diversity. I joined this thing called the DMB Tech Council and that's where we help, you know, with different initiatives to help make sure people feel like they belong in the industry and help to increase underrepresented talent in the industry as well. And, you know, they put their, they put their money behind different budgets to do different projects and initiatives and so on. Um, so yeah, it's been great as far as that. And then what I'm seeing as far as representation, you know, definitely seeing the rep- representation um, that I was expecting. And it, you know, I would I would think there's more uh, than than average. I haven't looked at the numbers, um, but especially as far as black leadership, you know, those like the most black directors, senior managers, uh, even in the C-suite, you know, that I've seen out the co- other other companies. Uh, and the work-life balance, you know, there, there's it's a there are points, of course, where like towards the deadline, you have to like. You, you could end up working a lot, yeah. Um, but generally, it's been way better than my my past companies. You know, with the exception, I would say of New York Times. New York Times was also pretty chill. Um. So yeah, like you know that that's my my current path. And as far as you know, I I did, I did touch on this a little bit in the last episode of how I'm trying to go for a promotion to staff engineer, and that's been a, a really amazing journey. Actually, you know, I've learned a lot, and I feel like. My mindset has shifted a bit, few times in this journey. You know, realizing what companies care about, you know, what makes sense. A lot of people think that working hard is is good for your perception, but not really. You know, nope. if you you gotta get the impact, right? You gotta you know you gotta have the outcome of your work that matters. If you have to that's work, that's have high visibility. Exactly. Yeah. That's another one. Yep. That's how exactly. I got promoted. Nice. I got promoted exactly. twice at this job, and only oh, been wow. a year. Congrats. If you if you working hard, working late nights, um, you know, getting a lot of tasks done, it's not going to be as good as if you work in the normal hours or even potentially even less than that, but achieving the, the like some some really important goals that the company actually cares about. So rather than trying to spin your spin your wheels, you know, burn yourself out, doing a lot of work, make sure you're doing the right work. And then make sure it's balanced as far as like your work-life balance so that you can have enough focus to work on important things. And what I mean by that is if you give yourself enough time, you could use it. So if, you, if you're working on a project and you're saying, okay, this is, this is um, no, I don't have enough time to do this. I want to spend some of my hours of my night to do it. Or I want to spend some of my hours of my weekend to do it, which is something that I used to do. And if you're doing that, what you're doing is you're not prioritizing and you're not focusing on the most important things because you're sacrificing extra time in the future mm-hmm. in order to try to do everything. Where if you instead said, okay, if I don't get this done before the, my workday is over, then you know things are going to be bad. So I need to figure out what do I need to cut out? 
you know, I need to figure out what is the least important thing or the, the number of, a number of least important, lower importance things to deprioritize, you know, reset this, reset the deadlines, you know, communicate this m- m- very early. So it's a good perception of it. And then make sure, and then make sure you have a high quality because when you try to stretch it out and doing the nights and weekends, the quality is very low because just you're tired. You're not thinking, you're not reflecting enough. You kind of just in the, in the mode, kind of just keep going. And there could be issues where, you know, you, you could have may have needed to refactor something or take an entirely different approach, but because you're in this grind mode, you just want to get this done. Like you want to finish this on your plate as opposed to thinking about, you know, what should you really be eating? And it's just a massive difference. Like as far as even long-term, if you keep getting to yourself overworking long-term, overall, your quality of output is going to be decreased. Even for like newer, newer things you pick mm-hmm. up the next day or the, or the day afterwards or the week or the month. Like if you're, like I heard this statistic recently that if you stay awake, you know, if you're, if you're sleep deprived, that's like having a high blood alcohol level as far as your mental capacity yeah. and ability and reactiveness. Uh, you know, you're, you're operating at a lower level of yourself. Like imagine you could be hundred percent as far as your intelligence uh, your understanding of things, your receptiveness to to changes and stuff like that, but instead you're operating at like seventy percent, which is like abysmally low to be operating at for a long period of time, and that has a long term effect on what you could have been achieving. Um, and it's just like a vicious cycle because the more you you operate in that state, then the more piles on because now you're falling behind on things you're trying to catch up, but now there's other things still coming and you're still trying to catch up. Um, so rather than try to catch up, you should figure out how do you make it make sense. Like, don't say, "Oh, I'm going to do extra work." Just say, "I only am supposed to work this amount of times, this amount of hours per week." So, is it reasonable that I'm trying to do this on weekends and nights? No, it's not a reasonable. What's reasonable is to communicate that this amount of work can't be done in like 40 hours a week. So, we have to make sure that. We, we get a smaller chunk of work that could be done in 40 hours a week and let them know that the rest of this stuff is just going to take longer. And the crazy, the really crazy thing about it that a while back, many years ago, that I, I didn't have this mindset, the managers, they, they, they need this. They, they're looking to you to tell them this because they don't actually know how long things are going to take. And they're going by what you tell them. And they, they, they may have an idea. They may say, okay, like in some, in some organizations, you know, they could be managers who try to set deadlines, but they're expecting you to say, hey, wait, that doesn't make sense. We're not, it's not yep. going to work. Because what they don't want is a situation where the deadline is coming close and everybody's scrambling and then the deadline gets missed. And it looks really bad on the manager because they kind of suck up all the, all the, all the, uh, both the pot. Well, they get a lot of good attention for the work, but they also get the negative as well. Yeah. Things go wrong. So they're not saying, they're not really for the most part thinking, Oh, I want to, I want everybody to work hard as possible to get things done as fast as possible. Their main thing is they want the most reliable delivery of features or products as possible. They want it to be reliable. So, whether it takes one month or it takes five months, you just got to let them know, hey, this is not going to be, you think it's going to take one month, but what I'm seeing, what I'm looking at is actually going to take five months. Yeah, speak and, up early and often because I know that's been a, a weakness of mine throughout my career. Uh, doing estimates. Yep. I hate doing estimates even to this day when uh, I do estimates for sprint planning. It's like, how what's the level of effort? And you know, I try to now do something called under promise and over deliver. Exactly. 
Exactly. Because when you're under promise and you or and then you actually get stuff done faster than you told them it was gonna get done, they're like, Oh wow, this is amazing. You said it was gonna take a month or two or two months and it took two weeks. You know, this is great. Alternatively, mm-hmm. if you tell them it was gonna take two weeks, when you actually sorry, if you tell them it was gonna take like one week and you still did it in two weeks, that's gonna look very bad. You know, you say well, in the case of a week, it's not very bad, but just just for example, you get it done in the same amount of time, two weeks. In one case, you told them it was going to take two months, but you got it in two weeks. Other case, you told them it was going to take one week. It's a massively different perception in the same output, the same amount of time, massively different perception just based on the communication. Uh, and this is why it's a good practice to pad your estimates. And by pad, I mean like add extra time. So you know, come up with your estimate in your normal way. And then you multiply, you get a multiplier. You know, you can use 1.5 to basically almost doubling the amount of time because just from experience, myself included, and it's, it's very prevalent within the, in the, in the industry, it's hard to estimate how, how long this is going to take. You Think about it. You, you, you will never know hour by hour, minute by minute, how long it's going to take to do something. You don't even know what you need to know to do something. Mm. There's going to be a lot of research you have to do once you get the task. A lot of looking up things, a lot of figuring out things. You didn't, you can't figure those things out yep. when you're estimating. So it's all a guess. Gathering requirements so, from stakeholders, and sometimes they never know what they want. Yep, exactly. It's, it's all a guess. So it should be, you should feel comfortable by saying, "Hey, my my guess my, or our estimate was actually wrong." Once I find out this more information, now I realize it's going to take two times longer, and so on. Uh, and and because of the Things like this happen. That's why we pad things. So we say, okay, my guess is that it'll take three weeks. But because I know there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknowns, things are going to come up. And historically, uh, estimates are lower than the actual time it takes. I'm going to add this padding to account for that risk. So I'm going to double the amount of time I thought it was going to take and say six weeks instead of three weeks. Because I know there's a risk that it's actually going to take longer than I, than I think it is. And if you get it done earlier, that's great. Uh, it's gonna look good on you. Uh, but if you if you you know things go wrong, then at least you had that extra padding to to protect yourself. And things will go wrong. Servers go down. Stuff happens. Trust. Yep, and that's another good point, right? Other incidents come up. You know, things interject. Other priorities come up. And when that happens, it's very important to communicate that that's disrupting whatever deadlines you already had set. You know, a lot of people just try to continue on with the original agreement that they had, even when things come up and it kind of makes them feel anxious, pressure. You know, this is what I've experienced personally. And I've seen other people, you know, in standups who are going through this. Uh, and I reach out to them and ask them because I, I see, what, see what's, what was happening with me, with them at that time. Uh, and friends of mine as well, we talk about this. If you're... If you had to do a thing that was due like next week, but then some many things came up back to back, or or even just like over time, some some things taking up your time, you just say, "Hey, this other thing took my time up, so now I got to re readjust this this timeline." And it's important to do that to do that readjustment, otherwise, things will keep on piling up. You know, so it's not it's not set in stone once you start working on something. It's, you're always looking, reviewing things to make sure things are still on track, and if not. You have to do that adjustment. If you're not doing adjustments, um, then something is probably wrong because there's no way you're going to be getting the right estimate every single time. And you're probably overworking mm-hmm. yourself if you're not doing that. Ain't that the truth? 
So let me ask you this, like um, as someone who worked at both Uber and Airbnb and like big tech in general, uh, what are some of the similarities and differences between those two companies and like your time working there, like their culture and like their approach to tech and data and all that good stuff? Yeah. So, yeah, I would say let me start with the differences because there's some glaring differences as far as how things execute and they have consequences into the, you know, how they impact the engineers. Um, so I, I would say the biggest difference is in really the release cycles. Um, I would I would say I really compare I see Uber and Airbnb uh, as comparable in cultures and styles to Facebook and Google. Facebook is more of a move fast, break things. You know, you know they they change that model of course because they have like hundreds of billions of dollars at stake, but they still they still move fast, right? And they're not as afraid to release something that doesn't look perfect. Uh, they, they release broken things all the time, but then they fix it and so on. And good thing about that is that when you release something early, you get to get that feedback and you improve on it based on that actual feedback. Because when you're making a new product, you're just kind of guessing what people want. Once you release it, you get that feedback of what, what parts of the app people are using the most and kind of invest in those areas and so on. And that, that's a good thing. But at the same time, if you're constantly pushing things out, you're being pressured to push things out, then that's a, that could really lead to a bad work-life balance. If and there's two sides to it. One is the company pushing, and then two, if yourself, you're not pushing back against that. Um, and there's also things that could be psychological things that hurt that 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 make it hard to push back. Like you may be trying to go for a high bonus or trying to get promoted, and you feel like you're going to look like you're not performing as well compared to your peers. You know that's 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 the feeling you can get. And I would say, you know, don't worry about that. Just be very open communication with your manager. You know about timelines and certain milestones you got to hit to be able to get a certain performance level or promotion. And then that will help to remove those fears of artificially working hard just to, to keep your perception up. You know, the perception, you know, be, be very clear. Don't try to assume your perception. Just talk, have an open communication channel. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, that 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 move fast thing has all those downsides. And then with, with Google, they on the almost extreme opposite. And we've seen this play out recently with ChatGPT versus BARD, where Google has really amazing AI technology for years. Like back in 2017, 2018, they had a demo of Lambda making a phone call to order food or to make an appointment. So it was doing the, the voice recognition. It was it was generating a conversation and the person didn't know it was a robot. And then they have the Palm model right now, even Palm E, where they actually, embody, the E stands for embodied. They put it into a robot. It could do generic task. It says like, hand me that soda yep. or pour me, pour me a soda. And it goes, scans the room, finds a soda, pours it, hands it to the person. Like they have really advanced technology. And in this, this, this uh, architecture that I created, transform architecture, the T in chat GBT stands for transformer. That was completely invented by Google and all the libraries, APIs coming from Google that OpenAI is using. Of course, they have their own, OpenAI has their own advancements into like the training methodologies and their own, their own architecture within that larger transform architecture. But Google is not in any way behind as far as AI. Like a lot of people think that, not even close. No, the, there is a threat though, you know, because their money comes from search ads, search ads don't play a role in the in a, in a large language model. Like if you ask the question and it gives you the direct answer, where's the opportunity to put ads? That's something they have to get around. That's I, w- I think that's the only risk. But as far as technology, I, I don't see them anywhere near as behind OpenAI, not, not even close, especially with the, the newer Palm models coming out. But because of the culture of, you know, not releasing things until they feel that it's perfect, 
they get in situ- they 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 hold back on a lot of things. It's like a waterfall style. There's like this difference between agile and waterfall methodologies of, of software development. Oh, don't I know? <laughs> yep. Agile, you know, move, move fast, get the feedback, iterate. Waterfall is like plan, 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 build, build, and then wait till everything's done and then have a big release. That's that's a waterfall style. And you no, know, in, in some respect. In some aspects, saying waterfall, it could be like a negative thing. Like, hey, this is like this is waterfall we're doing, um, because if you're trying to build something that's new that you're kind of putting a lot of resources into and investment into in time, that you don't know if people want it, then you could be wasting a lot of time and money, and that that's where the negative connotation comes, especially in the startups, startup world. But in like the the big big guy, the big corporate world, it could be positive in a way because you can catch things, legal issues. Or you can you can avoid hurting your brand. You're already successful brand compared to a startup who doesn't have a brand to to hurt and try to even if, even if they did release something that that would hurt their brand, not many people is going to see it, so they have a low blast radius. So like there's reasons for doing waterfall versus agile, um, but Google is definitely on the on the on the uh, right end of the scale as far as as waterfall moving very slow. Many stories from my colleagues and even publicly online of Google working on products for literally two years and not releasing it ever. They decided to shut it down because of, you know, they decide, you know, it's too risky or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, or working on something for a whole year before they release it. And in like a, a, like a really small thing, like working on a whole year makes sense for a product, depends on what it is. But like, it's really to the extreme level of, of that. And it's also a lot of people, a whole lot of people working on smaller areas of concerns. So like, you may have somebody who's working on Google Maps, who's focused on just the, then. This is this is something. So, so some back in the day, somebody was. I did a lot of a lot of uh, interviews at Uber. Like as a, as an engineer, you're expected to interview other people who's trying to get into the company. And you know, at Uber, I did over 200 of those, especially in the early days when we was hiring really, really fast. And one of the I had a few people who was from Google, uh, and it was a very similar theme. One of them I remember it kind of stands out where he was mentioning that. He, he's his own concern for his whole job is like the address feature on Google Maps, like save an address. And it seems like you wouldn't think that somebody's that that's somebody's like main area of focus. But you know, there's a lot of there's obviously a lot of moving parts, but there's also a lot of support infrastructure that they have, and and it just speaks to the small scope of things. And even back you know in 2019 when I was talking about how I got those six offers, I was doing a team matching call with Google. And, you know, every, like, every single time I would try to elaborate on something that they would tell me and, like, kind of bring up other ideas, they would kind of rein it in and they'd be like, actually, we, we focus on this area of this part of that part. <laughs> uh, and it was just a massive difference um, compared to, like, an Uber or Facebook where the engineers are, are responsible for a larger scope of, a larger scope of work. And there's, there's good and it's bad to that. You know, obviously the good of being responsible for a much smaller area is that your, your work-life balance is going to be a lot better. And, and Google is known as the canonical example of, of like the best work-life balance company ever. And I don't know, I don't have any experience working at Google to, to be able to validate that, you know, further mind kind of confirm that. And of course, it's going to be, you know, outliers. People sometimes, you know, I hear that for whatever reason, Google Cloud New York has a reputation for not having a good work-life balance compared to the rest of the company. You know, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But there's, there's a you know, general perception that there's a the best work life balance you can find is at Google, 
And some of these things may be the contributors to that. Uh, so those are, I kind of just went through the cultures of Facebook and Google that stand out to me. And those map one-to-one, I feel like, to Airbnb, where at Uber, there's a large scope. You, know, you have a large scope of work to, to work on. And you move really fast. Like, you release things very mm-hmm. fast compared to, like, a Google or Airbnb. And at Airbnb, uh, things move relatively slower. You know, there was, and, it, and there's also that, that, that care about how things look and the design. You know, our CEO is a designer um, by, by trade. And he says all the time, like, he wants to make sure that the experience looks good, you know? So, you can tell because they got the better, the best looking website out of those uh, companies the, you just named. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Even compared to the competitors in the, in the travel space. Yeah, because the other ones, their websites, ooh, Jesus. <laughs> and it even goes down to the UX, not just the not just the design. So even the project that I was working on, you know, it was my project was pushed back by an entire year because of the because um, they wanted to do a redesign. Like not that would never happen at a at a Uber, probably not at a Facebook, because you know their thing is they want to release it as soon as possible and get the feedback and so on. Like they wouldn't they wouldn't spend an extra year trying to invest in the, you know, the look and in the, in the feel of things. And, you know, there, there's different reasons for that. You know, I think one of the bigger reasons could be competition, right? Because competition in social media across, you know, TikTok, Twitter, Snapchat, and so on is, is relatively fierce. Google is dominating uh, their industry, like over 90%, uh, I think, still, as far as search. So it makes sense that they want to focus on maintaining that large position and going slowly not to mess things up. Whereas Facebook and Uber, Uber is facing even more significant competition, way more significant competition than, than a Facebook because all these little rideshare companies popping up, you know, their model is get a lot of money from investors, pay a bunch of drivers to drive around, and then give out a lot of coupons to people mm-hmm. to, to get coupons for rides. And you kind of need to- using Uber's API. Yep, exactly. And you kind of need to do that because- it's a chicken and egg problem. It's a marketplace problem. You got to see the marketplace. If you want to create a network of drivers and riders, if you start out with only the drivers, they're not gonna they're not gonna just drive around and not get money because there's nobody on the app. Like you gotta have the riders. So if you want to start with just the riders, they they download the app, open it up, they want to go somewhere, but you can't find any drivers. So you need to start out with both of them, and that's a very hard thing to do. So the easier solution to that is is money. You pay drivers to drive around in certain areas so that by the time people start to catch on and download the app when they want to go somewhere there's somebody there's drivers available and with this model a lot of many many different uh ride sharing companies or food delivery companies start popping up around the country and outside the country as well in many different countries so in order to compete you gotta you know and eventually they're offering the same thing right you want to go from one place to another place there's not too much you could differentiate as far as the trip itself going from point a to b or the food delivery <clears throat> you know ordering from the same restaurant on different platforms is basically the same thing so you got to be really innovative and move very fast to be able to catch up and and kind of gain an advantage over your competition so i understand why the culture could be move fast at, com- at in, in companies where there's a lot of competition, and I don't know the full competition landscape of Airbnb because like it's not as prevalent as search. Um, but you know, from my personal experience, that Airbnb is my go-to. Obviously, even before I was working there, 
And I don't even I didn't know about only know about one other one like Verbo and HomeAway, two other ones, yeah. which are nowhere near the level of popularity as Airbnb. So I feel like there could be a, a similar situation where it's like a moat that's being that you know make sure you protect the brand, make sure you don't mess things up, you know, keep things going, improve slowly but surely, as opposed to needing to constantly figure out what's my next you know angle going to be to get an edge in the massive competition. It's a lot different. You know, I think those those are are the factors and the difference in the cultures and the, and the worker styles, which was boiled down to the release styles in, in the software. And as an engineer, it's funny because for most of my career, I've been on that whole agile mindset and kind of scoffing at the idea of waterfall. Like, why would you... Smart man. Spend, exactly. <laughs> why would you spend so much time investing? And it does make sense for smaller players, for sure. Like, if I want to build my own thing, I'm not going to spend two years <laughs> investing my own money and time to building the app that may people may, may, may or not like. You know, I want to build I want to start with a land. I want to start with no code, with a landing page. See how many people sign up who are interested in the idea of the product. You know, get some of the screenshots made. See people like that, and then start out with you know however small you can do, with low investment, little by little, build up over time until you have enough confidence to invest that much into it. But as an employee working at a company in in the agile versus waterfall uh, mindset, I feel like. More th- more often than not, probably nine times out of ten, if you're working in the company that has a waterfall style of release dates, your work life balance is going to be a lot better because there's no, there's so. not, but that's what I think so. And it really depends on how the releases happen, and it's really about the the deadline pressure. Because if there's no pressure to constantly release stuff, then be, being able to you still would need to be able to push back on things. You know, somebody is, has to be a reason for something to get pushed back. Now, saying that, okay, this needs more time, we're gonna do this the right way, or you know, there's issues here or things come up, there's no there's not as much pressure to say, okay, we have to figure out how to how to do this still, regardless. You know, it's just push it back, you know, more time, more time out. And there's two parts to it. One is waterfall and then one is the deadlines, like where they send the deadlines. But I feel like those are heavily co- correlated. Um and that's been that's my personal experience. It sounds like you have a different different experience. I'm curious as to to hear what are your viewpoints. <laughs> So I'm currently working with uh, Agile Fallout, I'll say. Even though it's supposed <laughs> to be Agile, uh, the project manager is very much a Waterfall guy. So yeah, so I'm dealing with Agile Fall. But I've dealt with Waterfall, like you said, because I, I came in through a lot of ad agencies and they tend to use a lot of Waterfall. I've only been to like one ad agency that used like uh, Agile. So yeah, but I love I prefer Agile, but some of those places, even like the old school places, they love waterfall. So that's the fight. Interesting. Yep. And there's like there's two there's different different sections to it because with waterfall, for the most part, if you if you're managing things right, you can have a really good work life balance. But if you if you're not managing things right, then you can get towards the deadline that's gonna come up ultimately and then still not be ready and then still end up going into crunch mode. Um, but from, from my experience, I feel like that risk is still less than having to always be in the mindset of like, you know, releasing, releasing, releasing. So like this, this trade-offs to it, neither side is perfect, but I just feel like personally, uh, you know, that environment where there's less pressure to push out new things constantly gives you a lot more peace and also a lot more time to, to build things, uh, you know, with the right way. You know, if this is a project that already has heavy investment behind it and it makes sense because you expect it to scale, you know, you could start out with something and have a lot of tech debt. Or if you have enough time because 
the design needs to be redesigned. Oh, now you have more engineering time to like improve on things. So there's a lot of different trade-offs. And right now, I feel very comfortable sure. in, in that in that uh, that slower release cycle environment for sure. Yeah, because it can get like frustrating sometimes because you got to produce something every two week sprint or three week sprint, whatever have you. And then, especially when you got to demo something, because we have sprint demos where you got to actually demo your features and what you worked on and what whatever bugs you fixed. And if you really don't have anything to demo, it can feel, you know, intimidating. <laughs> yep. Actually, like even with the waterfall, you could have the, the two week sprints and so on. Like you said, agile fall. I think that's that's that describes most companies that try to do agile. Like there's always some elements that they can't let go <laughs> and they, they want to improve. So they, they try to insert agile into it, the pigeonhole into it. And it's like this weird Frankenstein combination of it. Yeah. Um, so that even, even, you know, with me, we do two week sprints and so on, but like the difference is all those sprints that are contributing are not contributing to like, you know, we're going to release the new product every, every two weeks or so on. It's more of like these bigger milestone goals that we're working towards for like a bigger release. And within that, you know, if things don't finish within the sprint and you carry over to the next sprint, it's not as much of a glaring issue with pressure as it is would be like if you want to, if you needed to release that stuff at the end of the sprint. Yeah, that's true too. That's definitely true. I want to also touch into the group because, uh, you know, that's why I'm very familiar with you from and where I've met you and all of that. You know, the data structures and algorithm and then the Discord server algorithm. And then I think it's called Black tech on LinkedIn, but it's essentially the same group. And I know that you help people in that group to get in, you know, and help us with the technical interviews. Um, any success stories that you know offhand or memorable moments from running these uh, groups? Yeah, I remember uh, you know, a bunch of different posts about people saying how they got jobs now. They're, they're making over 300000 over 400000 You know, there's about six of those that I remember, probably, probably more. Um, offhand. And it's just interesting because like the biggest factor was in how they prepared for the interview and even like what companies they felt comfortable going after. You know, one of them, uh, he went to Google and I think it was, it was one of his, uh, he was like more, he was more early in the, in the, in the industry. And it was like, he was telling me explicitly it was because of how I helped him prepare, like taught him how to, how to learn basically was a big, contributor to a success to get into that company. Um, and there's also people in the group who are taking upon themselves to help and in, in, in teach others. Like they're hosting their own study sessions, you know, have, hosting their own conversations, which is great and which I fully support. Yeah, I love it, actually. I love to see all of it. And uh, I know we were supposed to have something tonight, but I think it got rescheduled, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, yep. Uh, David Fowler, distinguished engineer. At Microsoft, and you know, distinguished engineer. A lot of people don't know that term, and basically, that's hard to make. Exactly, you know. If you, so, there's there's two tracks: the IC track, which stands for in the individual contributor, and then there's a management track, which most people know about, which is managers. So, you could be a manager, you could be an engineer. Your titles will be different, but you could be at the same level. So, like, you could be a senior engineer or a manager. Those those could be at the same level, depending on what level of manager you are. And then, like a manager too, or a senior manager you know, depending on the company, could be equivalent as far as seniority to a, a staff engineer or a senior staff. And then you have like your directors and then you have like your, which was also senior staff could be level to director as well, depending on, on, the, on, the, on the ladders of the company. And then you have your principal engineers, 
and your VPs on the management side, and they like your distinguished engineers and like the C-suite or so on, or, or mixed between VP and C-suite on the management side, like the CEO ultimately is a manager of, of, the, of uh, all, the, all those other C-suite people. And then, the, you know, the VPs and the, and the uh, directors below them. And then you have distinguished engineers at the top, um, which has principal and, and senior staff and staff below that. So distinguished engineers is like the very top top as far as, and then, and then there's even one more above that, I believe, called fellow, um, which is even, even crazier to get. But like distinguished engineer on his own is, is like a ridiculous accomplishment. So it's going to be a really interesting conversation to have. Um, and we did one last year with, with Kelsey Hightower, who was also a distinguished engineer yeah. at, at Google. Um, and yeah, this one's at on June 7th, you know, 6 p.m. ET. Uh, there's a Microsoft conference going on. It was like a crazy coincidence uh, how we didn't really anticipate it because we set this back up a while, a while back ago, the uh, <clears throat> the date for May 23rd, but it happened to land on the, the Microsoft Build Conference. So it's not really a good time. Like it's, it's too much things going on. So I rescheduled it. Which track do you prefer? Uh, definitely IC, but it's funny because, you know, at the same time, I have my aspirations of making my own company. So uh, if you're making your own company, you, you know, you're going to be CEO or even CTO. And and even as a CTO, which is a technical, that's still a management position. Yep. So you're going to have to be a manager no matter what. And I've done management stuff already with my own companies. But I do prefer, you know, working on architecture or systems like coding as well. So I, I prefer very much being on the IC track. Me too, but they keep making me go on the other track. Every job, some for some reason it's like you can't stay on the IC track long. If you want this, you get this promotion, you get a raise. You got to go to this track. It's like, oh. yeah, and, that, and that's what I like about big tech, like with those two tracks I mentioned, because um, they kind of do it in a way where they they recognize that problem of people can't move up unless they become managers, but they also want to to promote and foster good high t- high quality talent. So they. They try to put them on the same level as far as like conversation, right? So if you want to go up as a as an IC, you can still do that. Staff, senior staff, principal, etc., and you'll be getting paid on the same level as the other side of, of it, like manager, director, VP, and so on. It wasn't always the case, but that that's that's the case um, nowadays. I like the, yeah. uh, the, the, the especially the bigger tech companies that put a lot of weight behind that. Yeah, when I applied for Facebook and Google, they did that for me. They were like, "You want an IC or you want a man?" I said, I see all the way. They're like, you sure you don't want to? I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) I see. They're like, but your title says, no, I see. (laughs) (laughs) And they'd be having this other thing called tech lead manager, which is like a mixture of manager and also I see. I don't know too much about the experience of working in the role. Uh, You know, I had considered it, spoke to a few friends and, uh, you know, basically the consensus was that it wouldn't, like, it's not going to, you're going to be managing people and you're going to be coding. It's like kind of almost double the work. And if you're not really into the management side, then you might, you're probably not going to be happy with it. You're probably going to yeah. feel overworked. Yep. And then also I was wondering, like, is it a way to help to advance to like the next level and so on? But like, it doesn't uh, track directly. Like, it doesn't automatically mean you'll just be able to get a promotion just because you start doing, you know, that. So it's not, even though, even as a strategy, a strategic way of, of going up the ladder is really kind of a detour depending on what your interests are. Yeah, that's definitely true because you got to know what, what you're dealing with. Now, also, I know that you have, I got to talk about this, this Trello board, man. That thing is like what I use when I get the itch to nice. like apply for big tech companies. Every two years, I get like this itch to apply to them. 
because <laughs> they'll they'll bombard me with emails every few months and I ignore them. Then I'm like, all right, I'm gonna go for it. Why not? Then I pull out the Trello board and I start going through like the data structures, the lead code problems. You know, I got my whiteboard here and I write them down and try to nice. just do it off of writing. Even though the last few ones, I didn't even have to write on the whiteboard. I just did it on a Google Doc. But oh, yeah, I still yep. do the, the whiteboard. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> Especially pandemic nowadays. Mm-hmm. Ooh, everything's remote. Almost. But yeah, that Trello board, you know, is, is an invaluable tool. I, I implore everyone, if you're going for those, uh, inter- even the regular uh, tech front-end interviews, back-end interviews, you could also use that to be useful. So yep. it's not just for big tech, but yeah, I, I organize, like I share that thing like everywhere. Thanks. So like, how did you come up with that? So that was really inspired just from my, like my working style. And like, you know, th- basically it's like an analogy or not even an analogy, really, just use, reusing concepts from work in my in my life, as far as being able to structure uh, your way towards achieving a goal. So, like at work, if you want to, if you have like a big goal and a lot of small tasks in between reaching that goal, you know, you break it down on either a sprint board or a kanban board. Or or in some way, and the same goes for side for side projects as well. Is what I do. Like, I realize that you can keep going and going without realizing how much progress you're making on a side project, or investing way too much time in things that aren't really as important. So, adopting the the, the principles and practices that are making success at work. Right. This is a great example. People at, people are at your job are getting software done consistently, releasing things. And there's a there's a reason to it though, why things you know, don't always go behind or why things eventually get released is because things are structured in a way. So like I think that structure is important for a lot of different things, not just working. And you know, studying is similar, but it's not exactly work. Um, so I think I've, I've applied it to many different areas, like exercise, diet, and stuff like that. And it made a lot of sense when it came to studying. You know, I thought about what I was doing. I had a certain amount of topics that I wanted to learn. And I had a timeline in mind for when I wanted to start interviewing. So it, it just got added up and made a lot of sense that, okay, I have a goal, I have a lot of different you know, tasks and I have a timeline. Why, 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 why wouldn't I kind of like, you know, set this up to be able to manage it like a project? And that helps a lot because, you know, I could spend, you know, a week by plan to do something, but then, you know, kind of fell behind and do it. And then I don't, and then I got this sense of like, okay, I'm far behind, but like how far behind? I don't know how far, like what do I need to do to catch up? Um, you know, what, where, where areas am I, am I missing out on? What, what, what should, what I should, why should I be right now? All these questions I go unanswered because things are not being tracked. So it just made a lot of sense to set up that Trello board, you know, which is a tool that I've used in the past for, on, on different projects, you know, set up the different columns based on what you want to learn. Uh, and then have a column for what you're learning right now. So, you know, you drag it over, you look at the board. Okay, I'm learning this right now. I should be done with this in X amount of time. And then I have this much still left to learn. So like, you have an idea of how much you have left to learn. You have an idea of what progress you're making. Like if the same thing is still in that, in that same column, that in-progress column for three weeks, then, you know, obviously you, you have to read, you have to sit. And I, I mentioned this in the trial board description, that it's not just about setting up once. You have to constantly readjust. Just like I was saying earlier, you know, in this talk, you got to constantly look at the current state of things and then readjust to make sure that the plan still makes sense. And, you know, just these project management practices work out really well for a lot of different things besides just building software or working at a company. 
Yeah, that's dope. That's definitely dope. Like, also, like, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that, um, like, other developers face when it comes to, like, just mastering, like, those data structures and algorithms? And, like, you know how they can overcome them? I know for me, I didn't have a traditional computer science background and, you know, degree and all of that. So for me to, like, approach it was kind of, like, rough. But it was, like, learning on the job for me and kind of, like, going back to school in a sense. But, like, even the people that get that computer science training, you know, sometimes it's still kind of rough for them. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I dropped out. So I have, like, half and half, I guess. Like, I had I had an introduction to the to the ideas that there's data structures. I remember in my junior year learning about, um, like, this standard library in C++. And, th- and they're thinking, like, oh, that's cool. They just made, like, a bunch of, you know, libraries and tools that you can use to help make things faster. And, like, you know, the whatever... Um, like a map or whatever it is, like whatever data structures that are built in to help you do things faster. So like, but even even that that, that understanding of node is not enough. So like even and even if you were like Stanford, for example, they have very good courses that kind of train you on like how you do these types of lead code type questions. And that's probably where the inspiration for those type of questions came from initially, I think like um, for the whole Google network and so on. But um, even, even people who go through that training, you know, years later, if they want to, you know, make a, a jump to another job, they still got to go through this whole process of studying data structures and algorithms. And the reason why, even though this is a test to get the job, it's not what you do on your, on your, on your day-to-day job. So like- Oh my God. I think that's the that, part that makes me annoyed. Yep. Like I have not used the Zystrus the algorithm yet or the James <laughs> algorithm. I'm still waiting. <laughs> exactly. It's like- it's crazy because like you have to do this to get the job, but then when you go on a job, you don't you're not doing it, and that's the problem because if you're not doing it on your job, then why, you can't expect to be good at it because you're not getting practice. You know, if you want to be good at something, you got to be constantly doing it. You know, if you if you were if the interview was all about you know building that app like you normally do, you wouldn't have to spend a, not even a second to prepare. You would just build the app like you normally do, right? But when it, like like those take home tests, right? They give you a take home test. You're not doing any any studying. You may be looking up some things before it to issues, which is normal. You also do that during work. But for the most part, you already know how to approach it and solve it. But if you get hit with a question like invert a binary tree, nobody's creating binary trees on their nope. day job like that. So of course, you shouldn't have the expectation that you're going to be able to do this. Only people who would do it like fluidly are people who are immersed in that type of work. So to supplement that or to address that, it requires a period of study to actually, you know, get the concepts, learn them, and then practice those concepts. And you got to practice them by doing these, these lead code questions. You know, a lot of them, just doing them to be familiar with solving those type of problems. And now it's almost like it's simulating, okay, if I was to do this, like if you were, if you were doing that type of stuff in your day job, you wouldn't need to prep because you would already know it. Obviously, it would be in your mind. But it's like a weird dichotomy in people's brains. It's like, okay, this is computer science and I'm applying for a software engineer position. It kind of makes sense. You know, maybe I should, you know, it, 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 people would assume, right? Software engineers know computer science. They could solve the questions. But these things, don't, these concepts, uh, <laughs> like the dynamic programming, yep. memorization, even well, memorization <laughs> comes up. Like th- these concepts just don't really come up in your day-to-day job. I, I do you, memorization. I'll say that, but I use it in yeah, React. Yeah, that's when I said that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the one I said. It does come up. So like, yep. so only like only the certain things that you actually do, you will be good at without needing to, to prep, and it won't seem hard. 
But you got to think about it like when you was younger, uh, when you were trying to learn multiplication or addition, it seemed hard, not because it was hard, because it was a new concept. And and what you had to do in school was a many, many, you know, a bunch of different addition questions, a bunch yeah. of multiplication questions, huge amount, like ridiculous amount, repetitive. And that kind of helps to build the connections in your mind to be able to solve newer problems that you didn't see. And it's, it's the same as that thing when it comes to lead code questions. You just got to keep doing those types of questions. And then after, like, you're going to be very bad at it at first, like I was. You're going to fail. You're going to take two, two hours. <laughs> no, I took two hours to try to do an easy question. I still got it wrong. And, you know, just that the, being able to study on those, like, do a deep dive into trees, link lists, maps, mm-hmm. you know, all those data structures, learn how they work, but at the same time, putting them into use in practice questions. Because yeah. it's only when you put them into use that you realize how do you, use the different features to solve a problem. Like it's not enough to just know about the time complexity of like adding or removing an element or, or you know, how, how to build the, the data structure. You got to know, you got to be immersed into situations where you're making a connection and saying, okay, I need to do this thing. So like pulling in this data structure and using that feature of it will help me with that. And then you're going to you're gonna develop those connections and then and it'll be easier because you don't have to spend much time thinking about it because the way your brain works, once you learn it in that way, you're going to be able to make that association easier the next time around. So yeah. I would say don't be discouraged. You know, <laughs> it's treated as an ex- expectation. You should be expected to have problems solving legal questions. The fact that you're a software engineer and the fact that it's, it's that legal questions are rooted in computer science is completely irrelevant because that's not the work that you do. You're not, exp- you're not exposed to it. You're not getting that practice in your day job. So it doesn't make sense for you to think that you should be good at it. You got to think about it like it's a whole new area of, of software engineering, like you know, data engineering, machine learning, you know, front end, back end, mobile development. You're not going to just expect to pick those things up and be good at it right away. You got to learn those things and you got to practice it. And that's the same thing with, with uh, you know, working with data structures and algorithms, despite the fact that those are the fundamental things, it's just because they're, they're hidden underneath the things that we're using. Yeah, that's true. Because I remember when I first saw Elite Code, I couldn't even get past two sum. I yep. was like, oh my God. <laughs> I said, oh my God. <laughs> but uh, the only data structures I really use, that's why I was so like, why are we learning? But it's like I only use arrays and I use like hash maps and maybe Basically, sets yep. from time Most to time. Most popular. Yep. That's it. That's the extent of my like data structures I use on a day to day basis. And the but, reason yeah. for that, and, and the reason for that is like, you can make a tree, right? So trees are good at giving faster access when you want to insert data yep. or, or retrieve data, right? But if you're talking about it being worth it to optimize how you insert and retrieve data, if if that's actually a need that you have, you better be going for a database. <laughs> you know, if yep. you're trying to make an in-memory, if you're trying to make a, a program that has a tree, you're not going to be able to support having a lot of memory in that tree because like, it's going to be a one process, right? So you have a request that comes in, and you have, let's say you have a you have a have a, a server cluster, right? You have many different servers or, or nodes within that cluster. You got a user request that comes in, it has to insert some information somewhere. It's not like a leak code question where you can create a tree and then you can just put the information in the tree because like the next mm-hmm. request that comes in is gonna go to another, it could be routed to another server and so on. Like it doesn't scale across processes. It can't, and it, even if you even if for whatever reason you have just one server. You can't hold that much information in it. Like you're not going to be holding nope. all Facebook's users in one tree, in, in in one process. 
So the whole legal question thing is also artificial in that sense because you would you should never need to have a tree for a single file or well, not file for if you run an application that runs on a single Absolutely process. Not. There's no benefit to it because the scale is not there. You might as well just have a regular list and iterate through it because it'll take it won't be it won't be as far. And then you know in some cases maybe you have uh, an offline type of type of job where you're like analyzing billions of records through one process, but it's like a queue and you're doing it slowly. There's still a lot, you can't fit all those records in your memory all at once. So there's still a lot of work to be done to break it up and distribute it across processes. And you would use tools to do that, like databases, queues, you know, caches and stuff like that. And that's why- I you cache. <laughs> yeah, yeah and that, yep, true. <laughs> so like, that's why when it comes to like the other, other types of round interviews, which is architecture, a lot more people don't feel the same way as like, oh, how can I do this? You know, they could be they could be um, apprehensive because at the same time, there's an expectation that your solution will be built to scale. And maybe you haven't, similar to data structures, you haven't been in a situation at work where you needed to support a lot of scale. So that there could be unknowns there. But at least the, the general concepts are very familiar to you. You know, you know about I like those databases. ones. Though. Yeah, I love the architecture question. System design, like system I, design I shine on the, yeah. Well, I guess that's why I'm an architect now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> See, like those are the ones that people are f- very familiar with those tools from the day job. So that's why it's like, they have an easier time doing it. It's just really when it gets to the the point where it needs to scale, so a point where they haven't really worked, that's when they just need to do more studying in the same way of studying the data structures and algorithms. That's true. That's true. So this is going to be my last question to you, like imposter syndrome. How does it affect you throughout your career and as a black man in tech? Oh, yeah. So imposter syndrome, something that I'm still dealing with. Uh, You know, even back in my early career, when I was doing freelancing for clients over the internet, like I mentioned in the last episode about Flashkit, even Craigslist, different different places, I would hide my age. You know, I, I remember this one time, for some reason, somebody asked how old it was. I was I was 17 at the time and I said I was 24 because I felt really? like 24 was older. I felt like 24 was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm an adult. Work. You know, you're in the industry already, you graduate college, and I just, just had that perception. And I was like, if I tell them I'm 17, maybe they'll think, oh, this project is not, not going to get done. <laughs> uh, and I was also, aside from just hiding my age, I would hide my race as well because I felt like I, I had, even though I didn't get any direct signals from anybody, of course, it's, it's online. I felt like if they knew I was a black 17 year old kid in the hood who was working on their project, they'd be like, no, nah, I'm going to try to find somebody else because something might happen. It might not go right. Or it could be a negative connotation or maybe it could be a scam, whatever it is. That was the perception that I was having the entire time that made me want to hide my own identity when I was doing this. Even though I was getting really good feedback, they, you know, the word I would keep hearing is rock star, rock star. Um, but you know, it was great for my my um, sense of worth and, and, and all that stuff and for encouragement. But when I reflect back, I realize most of those clients are like non-technical clients. So they don't really understand uh, how things work or what the level of quality was of things. They just know that I made it work. <laughs> yep, just uh, get it done. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that, you know, even that, that was like very early where I had that imposter syndrome just from that, my own identity. Just like saying, oh, somebody like me can't be doing this. That doesn't make sense. Uh, there's going to be something wrong if they knew how old I am or race I am and where I live and everything like that. Um, and then when it starts getting to, you know, being on site in work environments, uh, 
for the like like I mentioned before when I was I joined New York Times as a senior engineer when I was 23. That was my my first salaried role, and I had a huge imposter syndrome from working in this environment because I just haven't been in a corporate corporate role like that before. I was freelancing the whole time, um, and everybody else is older than me. You know, it was a team of senior engineers who were like at least 10 years older than me. So I feel like, oh, do I even belong here? Um, and there was this one point, like about a week or so or two weeks uh, into me joining the company where everybody had went off to a meeting. And I guess uh, something with the onboarding got mixed up where I didn't get added to some kind of regular invite. And I had gone to the bathroom, whatever, came back. And everybody who was sitting, we had like cubicles. Everybody who was sitting in my row, like my team was all gone. And I was looking around like, wait, where everybody go? Like, are they have? I was in the back of my mind. I'm like, not even the back. In the front of my mind, I was like, oh shit, maybe they're having a meeting about me. And they're like, shit, we shouldn't have hired this guy, <laughs> which is a crazy thought to have. And you know, eventually, I, when people started walking back from the meeting, they, you know, they, I was like, oh, where, where was anybody? They said, oh, we had a meeting. Okay, that makes sense. But like for me, I had this immediate imposter syndrome where it's like, maybe they hired me by accident. I might not do well. Uh, I got to prove myself, you know, being young, being black, and also having done this, so having mostly been freelancing and having this be my first salary position, it was a whole lot to feel like an imposter about at the time. Uh, and then going into Uber, you know, when I had, I mentioned in the last episode how the people kind of categorize companies based on the on, on tiers around like, where do they set their bar, their talent bar, this concept of keeping the bar high, making sure that, if you have somebody that you call a senior engineer at Google, um, you may not consider somebody who's a senior engineer at another company uh, just because of the level of complexity that they're working with in the scale of the organization and so on. So they have different bars or definitions for what it means to be senior. And Uber is one of those companies that has a high bar for what it means to be senior. And they typically take people who are senior from, le- for less- from lesser known companies or companies that have less of focus on tech. And based on you know what the level of experience of that person is, they're more often not could could down what they call down level them. So, you know, knowing about that and being able to get into Uber, you know, um, you know when I was 25 as a senior, that also gives me a lot of imposter them as well. Looking at the people around me and seeing they're coming from Google, they're coming from Facebook. You know, New York Times is a very reputable company, very popular. But as far as, you know, if you want to rank the industry, the the top big tech companies. Is lower on the list than a than a than a Google, Amazon, Uber, and so on. So, like, just being in an environment from people who feel like they have a lot more experience and knowledge than me, give me a lot of imposter syndrome as well. And when I would uh, go to meetings, and there came a time where I would need to give my my input in something, or whether that be on code or architecture, I would be very apprehensive and wondering if what I'm saying makes sense. Even if it was perfectly fine, even if it was a great um, little design choice, whatever it was, I'd be f- fearing that people would hear what I'm saying and then easily point out, "Hey, wait a minute, that's actually not the good way to go about it." Um, you know, this person is not experienced. This person doesn't know what they're talking about. That's my fear. Even if it that never was happened, that a problem for me. Yep. So, so because of that, it actually, it actually set me back as well as far as like visibility. You know, which you mentioned was a very important thing because. If I'm not letting people know everything that I can solve and, and do and have these great ideas that's not being shared, then they're going to look at me like, okay, I'm just doing the average job. I'm not contributing anything anything unique or, you know, there's no extra talent there. So like not being vocal 
can set you back, you know, for whatever reason you got. There's many different reasons people are vocal. I myself also had issues with anxiety, which is like a double whammy for me around imposter syndrome and, and being anxious. It's like I I could know something, but for some reason I just there's this irrational kind of hesitation to say it, or this, you know, my body can be shaken as if I'm scared, even though in mentally in my mind, I know I'm not scared. But it's shaking. <laughs> I guess, yeah, it was, it's the adrenaline that makes you shake. So you have a physical reaction to it. So the, the adrenaline rushing through my body, making me have this fear response where I know for a fact there's nothing to be scared of. But it's also, you know, that physical response is holding me back from from contributing to any any useful discussion and so on. Um, so yeah, that, that that's how it's been throughout my career, even, even today, especially even if me trying to go towards staff engineer, you know, a lot of the things I learned helped to put that at bay, though, because like I realized that it's not enough just to be at the skill level of your of your next level for promotion. You also need to be able to prove it on paper, because there's a promotion committee that goes through your packets and yep. you know looks at all the facts and says, okay, this person qualifies based on this, not based on relationships or anecdotes, just based on this. So if for whatever reason you don't get the opportunity to work on a project that can help you, you know, show those qualities then you, you just don't get the promotion. And even if you are actually qualified, you don't get it. So like knowing that helps. Same with interviews. Like I'm very, very familiar with the interview process, the concepts behind it, what happens before, middle, and after. And it's extremely clear to me that the interview is not about finding out who is good enough to work at your company, really. Because you can reject somebody who's good enough to work at your company. The interview is about finding about who is more likely this is an important difference. Like who is more likely to be good enough to work with the company? So if somebody fails an interview, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't work the company. In fact, the company like a Google or Facebook, they'll 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 say, okay, in six months you could try again. <laughs> you know, even if you fail, yep. you could try again. And the reason why they would even say anything like that is because they fully understand just because you fail doesn't mean you're a bad engineer. It means that either you didn't prep enough and they understand how you need to prep because you're not doing this any day job. Or you got a question that you had a gap in and it's fine to have a gap because everyone has gaps and this just happened to be your gap. Uh, you know, there's many different reasons for it and they, they know you can do, you can interview again and again and again and it's, and it's fine. So people could feel down on themselves if they get rejected from a company like they're not good enough. But at the end of the day, it was solely about that interview process, whatever skills they were looking for, whatever skills you were looking to to project. Um, mm-hmm. In the last talk, I talked about how for me, I had like a really good like it was like a whole maybe it was like it was like super lucky when I think about it how I I got my CM position at New York Times um, because I had basically all my my deep experiences and what they was looking for. You know, they was looking for flash experience. Now I had worked with video streaming and peer to peer technology as well. Uh, I had worked with FFmpeg, which is a popular command line tool for managing videos. I worked on my my biggest project at the previous contract that I had was working with you know, creating video players and like this the studio to create custom video animations and like stitch videos together and that stuff. I had been working with Node.js even, <clears throat> uh, and that, that was something that I just explored on my own. Got a lot of good uh, expertise in Node.js, and that team on New York Times was was one of the only teams at the company, if not the only team at the time using Node.js and there's not many people in the industry at all. So like for me during that interview, the skills they were looking for happened to align directly to my strengths. So they saw me as a shining example of what they need to hire. Whereas if I were in that same exact company, 
for the same exact level, if I was to go for an interview with another team that maybe does like C++ or something like that, they, I would have I gotten rejected. I would have failed the interview because I don't have the... And that doesn't mean that even I couldn't work on the team. It like, depends on how they, whatever question they ask. Like maybe they can ask general questions and know that people can learn C++ on the team and on the job, which is a very common thing learning on the job and uh, and then succeed there. But if they happen to ask questions that are in areas that I don't have strength in at the time, then could have could have been filled. And it also, it, it depends on the interviewer, right? You get one interviewer ask a question that you may know about. The next one ask a question you don't know about. Doesn't mean that you're a good fit or not a good fit. The important thing to the company is that there's proof that you're a good fit. Uh, and I say this all to explain why, you know, I'm not feeling, I don't feel as much imposter syndrome from the idea of like not getting into a company or from uh, not getting a promotion or anything like that. Because I know that there's a process to how this works and there's a lot of trade-offs. It's not a perfect process at all. It's a process that's meant to not increase the chances of a right decision by the company whether it's committing to promoting somebody and paying them more money and taking up a spot where other people can get appointed or committing to hiring somebody on the team. They want to increase their, their chances of success, but it's not certain when, when, they, when, they get, when you get rejected. I know Google uses a very popular term, uh, false positives, I mean, false negatives, where they say yep. they, they expect to have a, a, a large percentage of false negatives where people who are working at Facebook, you would assume, obviously, they could do the same job at Google, Right. But um, a lot of times, Facebook engineers get rejected or Google engineers get rejected from from Facebook or Uber or so on. Even though they have that experience, they could be working there for like five, 10 years, right? But because it, they didn't get that proof on paper, they want to just err on the side of caution and pass for now until they get that proof that they want. Yeah, and then Google recently uh, changed up their... Uh, grading system with that because it used to be like a score from like one to five when I first did it. But now they're doing, um, what is it? They're doing unanimous decision now. Interesting. Unanimous. Does that mean like everybody has to have the same or like what is that? Yeah. So when I last did it, that was last March. Yeah, it was unanimous. I had like five interviews and it was like I Aced all the four, but the one was like, no. Oh, damn. So they have to have every single, well, and that's, yeah, maybe that's the uh, effect of this environment or something because when they try to slow down hiring and stuff, because that sounds crazy. Yeah, but I did make the Facebook one. And then I know you plugged me into Airbnb and it was like a pushback on that and kind of like maneuvering around. And then I got the job I'm at currently where there was like, well, we're not going to grill you through the Thunderdome. <laughs> you say what you know, and, and we like what you got, just come on board. Nice. That's a practical way to do it. <laughs> I feel like a lot of these companies are still doing it the, the, the legal way just because they're afraid to change as far as like what the results will be for the, like, even if there's no, there's literally no research that's saying that being able to pass those type of questions correlates to better job performance or anything like that. But um, just keeping up with the, the status quo to avoid disrupting things. Um, but it's, it's bad because it has a negative effect from, from different angles. Like even when it comes to what I was talking about before with systemic racism, how if there's not many people or examples for us not only to look up to, but to share this knowledge on, in the opposite direction, then obscure things like the types of questions that Google asks, especially when it was less, lesser known back you know, five, 10 years ago, 
that's kind of knowledge that's only known by certain groups of people who have friends who have done it, who have relatives or you know colleagues or so on who have gone on to achieve and, and get into these companies and share. Okay, actually, I need to study for like three three months. Or I need to I need to study this these topics. Like that information is more known now on the internet public, but it wasn't for a long time. And this this is kind of like a, a, bar- a hidden barrier because you, even if you're skilled on the job, you, if you don't know this obscure thing that is not directly required to do the job, but required to get the job, then you're kind of left out in that way. That's absolutely true. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and on this parting thing, is there any advice you want to give to people that are trying to get in? Our black brothers in tech that are trying to like transition from another career, maybe, or just computer science grads or boot camp people. Like, what advice would you give them right now? Yeah, so I would say if you're trying to get into the field or you know increase your skill level or you know get promoted or so on, and or like the the most important thing is you're gonna you're gonna need to learn new things, of course, right? Whether that's Trying to break in, learn at least one language, um, preferably focus on one until you get enough expertise in it, and then you kind of branch off. Uh, not expertise, but like enough to build simple apps and then branch off. Uh, or if you know, if you're trying to do more complex things, you gotta learn a new framework or a new database or, or so on. Like the the theme is, you're always gonna be learning no matter what. And the best way I found to learn is to decide on a project that you're interested in building. No, back when I was fifteen, it was it was Pokemon. Um, I built like the battle portion of it. Like you, you have a monster, and you can press a button to attack, and so on. And then your opponent automatically attacks with a random attack. Now I built that in Flash. I didn't know how to build it when I wanted to build it. I didn't know anything about how to do it, but because I wanted to build it, I started. And whenever I got stuck, I just went to Google and then search how do, how do you do this, how do you do that, and so on. And that helps you because if you're trying to learn something, you're not just gonna. It's not too useful just to pick up a textbook and then read it from front to back. You're gonna have a lot of knowledge. You spend a lot of time learning things you just don't need to know. And if you're just learning things and not doing things, you're not gonna retain it. You're not gonna make those useful connections. So if you're learning something new, uh, have a goal, and then that will help direct you on what to learn. And then those. You know, if you're building any project, there's typically a, a core fundamental set of things that you have to end up doing. You know, probably involves with a database. You know, you need to be able to set up your 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 depending on what kind of project views right or your controllers right, whatever it is. Like that's going to come up across many projects. So having that project in mind will have a straight, clear path, or much much more narrow path than just trying to learn the concept in general. So you'll learn those things that are relevant to building stuff for production. Or that people can use or that's maintained. You're learning things specifically in the area that you want to learn, as opposed to just kind of being unguided and losing interest. And because, and if it's something that it's important to make sure you're something that you're really interested in, because you're gonna have the passion to keep going, going on that project and, yep. and spending a lot Act of time. Act don't come on that overnight. Project. Exactly, exactly. And all that time you have, you having, you know, you having kind of fun, right? Building that project, you're learning at the same time. So all those hours you're putting in are hours of studying, but it doesn't feel like you're studying. You're kind of just building, you're creating. Um, so that, I think you know, project-based learning is the, is the best way that I've seen for me to learn. And then on top of that, seek advice from more experienced engineers. You know, it's going to help you avoid, in a similar way to how you know, choosing a project is going to reduce the amount of options you have to waste time learning different stuff that you may not need. 
having advice from an experienced engineer also does that too. You know, they you you might tell them, "Oh, I want to do this. You know, I want to do that," and they say, "Actually, you know, people think that that's important, but actually, the the part of it that makes sense is this. So focus on that smaller area, which takes you know way less time and has way more better impact." And all 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 that advice can help you accelerate your learning significantly. Like if I had somebody who was teaching me um, back from when I was self-taught up until my first like senior position, I could have got there like four or five years faster because I was just kind of on my own, just aimlessly going around. Um, but having somebody who's experienced can help you save time and, and direct you into the path to, towards your goals. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your knowledge. Everything that you poured into this was like phenomenal, dude. Like thank you. Off no the problem. chain. Yeah. So, you know, we're gonna chop this up here. Thank you for coming through. This is Mike Legama. Once again, give it up for my boy Esco Abang. We celebrate the kings of tech and I'm out. Peace. <laughs>